The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit making your kids comment your code and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 350 with guests Dan Appleman and Kathleen Dollard, recorded live Monday, May 5th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who put the funk in functional programming... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. I'm doing the intro by myself while Richard's a tech head this week, but uh, he'll be around in just a few minutes for the interview. Um, not going to do a Better Know Framework this week. You probably noticed that on Tuesday. I didn't do that. We'll, we'll pick that up next week, no problem. But I do want to mention a couple of things, first of all. Infusion, our friends in New York City, are again looking for more people to do the New York City tour. This is a uh, consulting company. They do a lot of SharePoint stuff. They're in Manhattan. They, um, they, they're a bunch of great guys, very creative individuals. Uh, in the financial district, they have a lot of great customers. They've already got 14 of our listeners. So isn't that cool? Just by talking about that on the show, 14 people have moved to New York. And here's the incentive that they're giving away. They want to move you there, and they want to put you up in an apartment rent-free for a year in Manhattan. And it's the tour. If you want to, you know, after a year is up, you can stay or, you know, negotiate your contract or whatever or do whatever you want, go back. But uh, probably pretty good for somebody who wants to... um you know, somebody who's young and able to move and just wants to see New York and be a New Yorker for a year. And if you're interested in this, you can go to shrinkster.com slash Z5J. That's Z or Z5J. Also, Pop Productions is producing a new show 
called Telerik TV, if you like DNR TV, which you can see at dnrtv.com, by the way. If you like DNR TV and watching that sort of screencast interview thing that I do, um, check out Telerik TV, especially if you're a Telerik customer if you're, or you're just interested in seeing how real systems are put together with uh, third-party tools. Go to TelerikTV.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K-TV.com. It's a one-hour DNR TV-style interview uh, highlighting a project that was done in the real world with Telerik tools. Very cool and good tools, of course. You know our friends at Telerik. Well, Richard, this is indeed a fun show because uh, our friends Kathleen Dollard and Dan Appleman have joined us for a talk about uh, kids and computing. Let me just introduce them quickly. Uh, Kathleen first programmed when she was 12, which was about a billion years ago. I can't say that about you. (laughs) A billion years ago. And has been developing business applications for over 20 years. She's the second of three generations of programmers, with both her mother and son spending time as professional programmers. Rumor has it she taught her mom to code. She's been a Microsoft MVP for over 10 years, was the founding president of the Northern Colorado.net SIG, and is an active member of the Denver Visual Studio Users Group. She's the author of Code Generation in Microsoft.net from A-Press and has a monthly column, Ask Kathleen, in Visual Studio Magazine, along with dozens of articles already in print. As an INETA and conference speaker, she's spoken in 27 states and five countries about Microsoft.net. Wow. Welcome, Kathleen. Yeah. How are you doing today? Excellent. And Dan Appleman, everyone knows Dan. He's a well-known author, software developer, and speaker, the founder and CEO of Desaware Incorporated, which I think has been in business about as long as Kathleen's been coding. (laughs) A billion years. (laughs) The developer of add-on products and components for Microsoft Visual Studio. He is a Microsoft Visual Basic MVP, webmaster of search.net.com, and one of the co-founders of A-Press Publishing, and is the author of numerous books and e-books, including How Computer Programming Works and Always Use Protection, A Teen's Guide to Safe Computing, both of which are some of my favorite books. Oh, let's not forget the Visual Basic Programmer's Guide to the Windows API which was probably the biggest book in the business that maybe ever was. That is a book I actually bought twice because I broke the first one with so many post-it notes and stuff crammed into it that the binding broke and the pages fell out. I had to go get another one. <laughs> that was a big book. Yeah. All right. So we are amongst friends here, without a doubt. The four of us have sat in a room on a number of occasions, typically a speaker's lounge. And the reason we put the show together was... Uh, we all have dealt and are concerned about children and, and software development and computing in general. And technology right? in general, too. And absolutely. I mean, it's just the number of times we've gone off on a tangent before a show, after a show, in the speaker's lounge, just worrying about this stuff. And I thought it was finally time to all, for us to all get together and sort of lay out the land of our concerns and where things are going. Sure. Any place you want to start? Yeah. Um I was I was particularly interested in your in the whole kids the whole kids thing, and before we started, we were talking about some of the tools that are available for teaching kids how to program. I um, tried to tackle my nine year old when she was nine. Of course, she's twelve now, but when she was nine, I took out just a, a text editor, or maybe it was Visual Studio, and I tried to explain what objects were in the context of Mad Libs, which were f- some of our favorite games to do. And a Mad Libs program was the first program that I wrote. So I figured, hey, it worked for me. 
Let's see if it works for her. And she was truly interested in it, but um, not I, not as interested as I hoped she would be. Uh, the The other tool that I hear everybody talking about is Logo with the turtle, I think. But right. I never got a chance to see that. And then, of course, kids' programming language, which is now gone. Yeah, I went up there this morning and said it's no longer in distribution because they still program is better, and that's T-H-R-O-G-R-A-M. Uh, but program is not a free product, and so that is kind of rough, I think. Uh, they do have a, the lowest price version is twenty nine ninety five, and it goes up to forty nine ninety five. So it's not outrageously expensive. Um, it does have an IDE and stuff around it. So I wouldn't argue that it's an unfair price. It's just a market that has a hard time bearing any cost. Um, kind of at all. Well, are you familiar with the uh, the Alice project? I'm aware that it exists. I've never used Alice. Actually, uh, I actually played with it just a little bit, and uh, my understanding is that it has a, a some traction in terms of uh, being used in schools and getting kids excited about programming because it's a very visual language. You're, uh, I think it was inspired by Logo, except it uh, is uh, you know the difference between. Uh, uh, you know, old turtle graphics and what Alice does is like the equivalence between, you know, Pong and uh, Grand Theft Auto 4. It's, Ooh. It's a, <laughs> oh, that's a job. Yeah. Except, and, except that it's, it's, Alice is rated G as well, so it's okay. <laughs> right. And to give some credit, um, unless it's changed, Alice came out of Carnegie Mellon. Absolutely yep. came out of Carnegie Mellon and, and is very 3D sort of visual kind of way of programming. And they've done a very clever job of tying it to stuff like Sims. You can actually program your Sims using Alice. And I know my daughters love Sims. So the idea that they could actually have more control over it, I think, is fascinating. So this is Alice.org we're talking about? That's right. And uh, the program is a little bit different than that because it's actually, I, I looked at some of the samples on there and it's actually closer to a programming language and actually has, they, they talk about actually having a track to go into mainstream programming languages. Um, because I think that's one of the things about some of the logo and, excuse me, Allison type programs is that they, they really need a track to move kids on out of them. They're, they're, they're a stage, I think, to pass through for most kids. Um, it, at least it's my perception of a good role for them. So that they do move by the time that they're maybe 12, that they're, they're moving into more uh, mainstream kind of programming languages that can really accomplish a whole lot for them. But but let's pause for a moment and back up because are we talking about kids and computers or kids and programming? Because they're really two different topics. Well, I I, I agree with that. I think we kind of started with um, Richard kind of started us out with kids and programming, and I think that there's um, you know they've been hurt that particular has been hurt by the complexity uh, of programming. My son learned to program with VB3. And back in VB3, you know, the first thing he learned how to do was to make, it was a butterfly demo where the butterfly flapped its little wings and went around on the screen, and it was very simple. We would never really think of that as nice graphics today, but it was simple enough that he could do it. And then after half an hour of this, being a you know 10-year-old young man, or however old he was, he said, Mom, that's great, that's wonderful, now how do I kill it? And so I said, <laughs> I said... I need to go make dinner. I'll see if I can help you when I'm done. And certainly by the time I had finished dinner, he hadn't actually gotten it to do any prosaic death, but he had gotten it to stop flapping and drift to the bottom of the screen. So, huh. you know, that kind of independence is really good. 
if kids are interested in programming, but, but I don't want to keep us just in programming. No, no, not, so many other not at all. I, I, I was interested in it primarily because I had some experience in this, and I know that your kids are both into programming, Kathleen. So, Well, my, my older one is, and in fact, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do the show is that if that's an, I mean, well, I mean, let me say it a little bit more broadly. I feel uh, very positive about my son's experience with computers in general. Specifically, he has learned to program although it's secondary to his mathematics, that in about a week he gets a double major in math and computer science. Um, so that's, you know, he's, he's going on then to Cambridge. So he's gotten, you know, he's kind of like gotten the marks there. And so I think that there's some to be said about that. But I always want to stress when I talk to people about that, that the whole world today, and computers specifically, give kids a lot of different opportunities. Programming is one of them. While I did program when I was 12, it wasn't at home and it wasn't with any degree of regularity. Um, you know, kids today can program and they can program from a relatively early age um, and learn a lot of, of, about that. And there's a lot of ways for them to progress through that, uh, including one thing I want to give a plug for before we kind of go on. Once kids get past the Alice and they're ready to actually be programming in mainstream languages, um, C++ is a good one, but, but this program kind of moves kids into C++ to some degree. There's a program called USACO, which is USA, uh, the USA Computer Olympiad. It's at USACO.org. And once, if kids are interested in programming, once they get so they know the basics of programming, that is a program about algorithms. And it is an extremely good program to take kids from basic programming into some pretty high-end algorithmic stuff. And it's a coaching program. So it's a, it's a very it's a coached program. It's a very cool program, and the high-end kids in that do compete internationally. Wow. So i throw that in. Now, Dan, I know you work with a lot of kids, not just with computers, but in general. And uh, you have also written a book for A Teen's Guide to Safe Computing, which I thought was excellent, and I've given it to my kids. Do, do any of the kids that you work with on a personal basis ask you about programming? Are they Do they seem interested in it at all? Does it seem d- difficult for them? The The interesting thing is that you know, I'm in Silicon Valley, so and and the kids I work with, their parents are pretty much all in technology, right? Yeah. They're in in various different roles. At least they're working for tech companies, and the number of them that are actually interested in what you would call classic programming, uh, which is the way we learn how to program with general purpose computer languages, is is almost terrifyingly small. Uh, they're just not interested by and large. It's not considered really cool. It's not that it's particularly uncool. It's just not not something that's very exciting. Uh, Isn't going to get you a date on a Friday night, that's for sure. Definitely not. But uh, I, they, I find this fascinating because you're talking about an environment. You're talking about the Silicon Valley, the place where should be predominantly programmers, the most likely place to find them, and it, and it's incredibly low. I certainly have the same experience talking careers at high schools and colleges today where people just aren't interested anymore and not even in game development it, i mean it used to be a, a slam dunk that you know i have friends in electronic arts and i've done consulting for them and so forth and so i can talk pretty clearly about what it is to work for a game software company and it used to be that was just easy if i walked into a room and said you guys want to hear about developing games the house is packed that's right. simply not true today it's not it's not what, what you have is you have some of them who are taking it in school and they're learning Java. The schools are still teaching Java, which is a little remarkable, but that's the way it is. And you do see some 
I guess you would call it non-traditional programming. And these are the kids who are, you know, maybe they're building uh, Warcraft worlds or they're using tools like Game Maker uh, and so on, uh, which you could argue is programming, right? It's, right. it's certainly not. It's certainly not classic general purpose programming languages, but you can make a case that they're doing programming. But while it's true that they're none of that most of them are not interested in programming, they are all using computers the way you know we use paper and pencil growing up. Right. That's and, true. In, in fact, even more comfortable than we are in some respects. Yeah, and I would say especially the the sort of the instant messaging kind of things. I mean, I have a twelve year old girl now, and that's her life. You know, she wanted a laptop not for like word processing and stuff, but for IMing and you know the social aspect of it. Doesn't well, mean she wants to be a programmer. I mean, in a way, you know, I was thinking that the fundamental way we look at this program, you know, here we're doing a program on kids and computing, as if that is something interesting and special. But if you really think about it, it's adults in computing that is interesting yeah. and special. We're the ones who are adapting to it. Right. Um, right. <laughs> you know, we're in the cage, not them. Right. We're at the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're we're the ones who are struggling, and you know certainly as you go and and look as uh, you know older adults and senior citizens are the ones who are having often the greater difficulty in adapting to the new technology. I mean, you know, just getting my mom to use a DVD player is a challenge. Uh, you know, she's still on uh, very comfortable with VHS tapes. My uh, mother's players. VCR is still flashing midnight. <laughs> well, let's yeah, face it. So is mine. <laughs> Before they figured out how to automate that, half of everybody's VCR flashed. Well, a bunch of night. people just said, "What's a VCR?" Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, too funny. And so, I'm I mean, serious. And so, to the point, we have children that have grown up with computers. They've always had an internet connection in their lives. They've never known any other way. And and it's they take that computer as. On you, as a, as an unusual device as say a refrigerator is to us, yeah. they've always yeah. had it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, definitely. So one of the interesting phenomena that I've noticed just in the past few years, and this is the one that you know, when I was uh, traveling around the country um, doing a book tour on on uh, the Always Use Protection book, one theme kept repeating itself over and over, and that was the adults basically saying, "We're scared." Because we've spent years sharpening our skills to do, you know, uh, audio editing or video editing or so on. And they say, you know, I know 14-year-old kids who are as good as I am now. And so right. why are they going to keep paying me to do this when these kids can do it? And and a real good example of that is, is video editing where, yes. you know, when you first began to be able to do video editing uh, online, you started getting some really bad videos. And now, if you look at what people are doing and look at some of the stuff on YouTube, you'll find, yes, there's a lot of junk, but you'll find a lot of kids are cinematographers. They are doing really, really good video. And uh, that's such a revolutionary shift where you have tools that are so powerful that kids can basically use these tools, you know, they grow up with these tools, and they're able to do the kind of quality of work that you used to have to, you know, go to college and have years of experience to do. Right. Well, and it's not just powerful, but com very inexpensive. Yeah. And, and commonplace. And I, and I think that, that that whole area is one of the ways that, um, I think for, for some of our generation, to some degree, it was the ubiquitous communication, always knowing in real time what was going on in the world. It was one of the fundamental changes. But being able to access creativity may be one of the fundamental changes that our children today are involved with. 
um, my uh, violin teacher, who's about 22, is writing a piece for the high school my son goes to. And he said, I can't wait to hear it with real musicians. But he's already heard it through Finale. He's heard it through, which is a computer program for doing that. So it's video editing, audio editing, uh, mixing, creating a home studio so that the, you know, the garage band can do real, real, uh, CDs or real music to put up on, uh, some sort of a download site. Or whether it's writing an orchestra piece, there's all these tools involved with the computer to give the children a fundamentally different approach to their own expressiveness than we ever had. Now, as you rattle off all those things, those are things that I do all the time, and I'm wondering, maybe I just never grew up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's definitely possible, Carl. Possible. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely find that, uh, you know, for some of us, for the technologists, uh, especially the ones who are playing around a lot, we get a taste of that as well. I mean, it may not be second nature, right? But uh, but we definitely get a taste a taste of that. I I hear I, I was amazed when I heard my um she was my my first daughter was in grammar school, um and probably about fourth grade, doing compositions in Garage Band, and just because you know they have a really cool hip music teacher who's you know, great with technology and knows all of that stuff. That you know, that that's great. I, th- I think that's awesome. Right. I don't think I said anything new there. You might want to just take that out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't but really you, have actually, anything Carl, to add. I think a very valid point, which is that kids today are interested in computers. They are utilizing them as part of their day-to-day life without a doubt. Schools are integrated into them. You know, it's normal to make video now because these technologies are inexpensive and they're prevalent. They're everywhere. And yet, yeah. I cannot get kids interested in programming. Without without programmers, we don't have any of this. You know, wait, I, guess I just had a sensation here. Maybe it's because when we were young, programming was the only way that you could really take control of your computer. Right. Whereas now, there's so many high-level abstractions to do that with audio software, video software. They don't feel the need to do that. I think that may be part of it, and I think that, you know, it gets into, um, I think other things contribute to it as well. In terms of numbers, um, I'm not sure where they came from, but Rob Kolstad, who's the Usico coach, sent me this morning numbers that we've dropped down more than half uh, from about 4.4% graduates to about 2.2% graduates in university. So we really have this big drop in terms of who's coming into the field. And I don't know how we help that from an industry basis, um, but from the kids' basis, I also think that there's a level of, it's like mathematics. It's like, you know, almost like physics. It's something that isn't considered very cool to go into. Somebody earlier said it's not going to help you get a date on set, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night to be a computer programmer. And I think that that is a mythology more than anything else because when I go to conferences, I see a lot of really cool people from a huge diversity of backgrounds. And I think that this, that there is though this overwhelming among the kids in particular and among young among young women especially, um, that it's just not something to do and admit to doing. Hey, this is Carl, just taking a minute with a message from our friends at Telerik. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 Ajax applications with Web 1.0 components? That's right, you just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components, and that's exactly what Telerik has done. Their RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX suite is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET AJAX, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. 
Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET AJAX API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. So visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX right now and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, I think my kids think about programming the way I think about golf, you know? It's great to walk. It's great that you can walk around in the sunshine and have a good day and all that stuff, but it's really frustrating unless you spend a lot of time doing it, you know? It's Maybe. an interesting analogy. Yeah. Because <laughs> they kind of walk around in the sunshine with their computers and doing all sorts of cool stuff without taking the ball and the cart and dragging along the, the, the golf clubs because for a lot of them, they're not programming along the way. Where for us, we, we did program because we didn't have any choice when we started out. That was well, the only thing to do. There's just a big time, uh, you know, a lot of time that you have to put into it to get really good at it, too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, we're also, we're also well overdue for another change in the, in the software development paradigm anyway. I mean, I know, Kathleen, you're working on that uh, a great deal. And, you know, I, I think a lot of other people who are overwhelmed by, uh, you know, the, the, flood of technology coming at us that you know, if you want to be a competent programmer, I mean, let's face it, uh, the learning curve now compared to what it was when we were starting out is, is just orders of mag- magnitude greater. So something has to be done about that. And I think, and, and it definitely affects kids a great deal here, it's not just the learning curve, it's the amount of time, uh, the number of hours in a week you have to spend to remain marginally competent. So to even be able to do your job or to write programs for fun or whatever, uh, to do that as a sideline, it takes so much to get the technology, there's literally nothing left. So before, like maybe, you know, 10 years ago, if you spent three hours a week staying up on new technology, you were good to go. And today, if you spend 30 hours a week keeping up with new technology, you still don't know what you really need to know to write a good application. And there's just not a lot of shortcuts on that. Um, even something like XNA, which is the Xbox, um, you know, uh, API, which should be just tremendously exciting to kids, it's so difficult that we, we get back to your golf analogy, it takes such an investment that it's hard for them to actually uh, ever accomplish anything. So You know, I find this interesting contradiction being discussed here, which is on one hand, tools have gotten dramatically be- better and it's so much easier to do things with your computer. And then in the other next breath, we're saying, but programming is so hard. So well, no wonder if you were going into it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's difficult, but it's certainly gotten easier. You know, it certainly has. Um, it's it just requires a different kind of brain, and it, and it certainly does. It certainly the short attention span doesn't help. You know, you really have to sort of zone to to do it right. I think to have a a longer it, it, being able to focus, I think, is very helpful. Right. in in my uh, older son, who is a, it, I mean, he's been coding circles around me since he was about 16 years old. Um, he both had access to a lot of stuff, but he has got a tremendous ability to concentrate. Uh, so I think that that's, that that's very true. I think another thing that definitely affects kids that are on computers in general today, which is something that I know Dan knows something about, is we have some danger in terms of wiping your machine out. 
um, in terms of viruses and other things that are nasty, we also have a big perception on the part of adults still that it's somehow dangerous, that we have um, that to actually give your kids complete full reign on the computer, they're gonna, they, that they might get hurt. And so that's something we may want to touch on a little bit um, because it's a very personal thing, but it's also something that, that three of us, you know, that have kids have really intimately addressed. We've made decisions as to what level of freedom our kids are going to have well, when they there, sit down at their computer. Well, there's one thing that, that I would definitely recommend. There's a, a DVD that just came out. Uh, Frontline did a a documentary called Growing Up Online. So you can oh, you know, I saw you that. search on Netflix. It is actually a really excellent documentary. I was I was very, very impressed because they didn't just, you know, follow the, the usual media habit of let's figure out how we can scare people. Yeah, go uh, for fear. Go for fear. They, they really didn't do that. In fact, they're the first, the, seriously, the first media treatment I've ever seen that basically accurately uh, reflected the, you know, what Reality. it's really like in terms of online predators and online dangers and, and actually said, look, you know, it's, it's not the danger that people see it as. It, you know, the, the one study that's been di- done on this, and I actually refer to this in my book as well, pretty much says in so many words that you're safer online than you are in the real world. <laughs> and, which is, I think, absolutely true. You know, it's funny, I do talks to kids about internet safety, and I recently had to do one to a group of parents. So when I offered it to the school, the pack came back and said, would you talk to the parents? And had a room of about 40, almost entirely moms. I think there was a dad there. And we talked about Facebook and so forth. And one of the first things that came out was this whole abduction thing. And I'm like, look, this has actually never happened. At no point has someone broken into a house and stolen a kid because they met him online. What does happen is your child chooses to go to somebody they've never actually met before. Yeah. There's a bunch of failures that had to happen for it to get there. Right. Right. You know- the, the one study they did, it, it was about a study of 1,500 kids, and basically nothing happened to any of them. And the vast majority of the, you'll, you'll hear numbers like one in seven was approached online. And, and what you find out that, is that a lot of that approach was another teenager going, hey, baby, how you doing? Well, you know, right. that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. not, uh, that's not anything. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> it's true. Right now, but is this only an online issue? I mean, you don't need to be online to program. No, but you do need to be probably online to learn to program, unless you've got a parent who's going to teach you. And I actually think that's the worst possible way for kids to learn. Just like parents teaching kids to drive. uh, No, no. Well, to lesser extent, the thing is, is that what you need to, and, and maybe there's some similarities. But when you're learning to drive, you can't avoid learning um, independence. It's right there in front of you. The license right. uh. read, you have to respond. But when you're programming, if you have somebody to turn to, you're going to turn to them. The, right. whole, the whole thing about learning to program is not to do that. Self-resource. The kids get some of that today because we still do have a lot of bad software. You know, we still do have, you know, a circle that's a button and nobody tells you it's a button in major uh, office applications. You know, we've got tricks that kids have to figure out. Um, so they have to be able to get over the frustration factor in general. Um, and and let's you know, independence is really the core there. And let's let's also be realistic. If when we talk about this new world that uh, that kids are growing up with, it's not just computers. It is online. And, yes. Right. Yeah. And, and all the things therein. And yeah. you know, I know I know the, as a technologist that 
you know, I used to say that the greatest thing that Microsoft ever came up with was MSDN. Um, and, and that's a reflection of the fact that I started out as an early Windows programmer and what a revolution MSDN is. I got to tell you, as a technologist, the single greatest resource that I have is Google. Yeah. Right. And for the kids as, as well. Right. Google. Would have, you know, MSDN would have wiped your, your big book out. Um, Well, it wouldn't have in the sense that even now MSDN really hardly talks about Visual Basic. Right. 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 (laughs) Before we leave kids in safety, I guess I would like to say that I actually think that there's three areas that actually kids do need some really strong guidance to be, and safe is the wrong word to use, but to be okay um, online. And let me see if I can remember these. One of which is privacy. By nature, by just the way children are, they do not have a concept of privacy the way that, as adults, we learn to have it. And so things like, they want to you know, share. don't use your name online. And, um, you know, I actually at one point found that my son thought that meant he changed one letter. And, and so, you know, there's basic ideas of, of not, not hiding from big, scary predators. It was just basic privacy and the fact that children don't have an ability to maintain their own um, uh, their own. Uh, I'm trying reputation, especially so, younger kids. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so I wouldn't, you know, you, the, whatever they put online under their name will still be there when they're forty. It's yeah. like a tattoo, and you really want to have them control that. So I think privacy is a very real, um, real area. The second area, which is extremely personal for families, is that children can find things parents are uncomfortable with, and so um, that's something that that every parent has to come to grips with. And for most parents, that's probably something to recognize that your children can find that somewhere and that, it, that it's, it's a matter of, um, so to go straight to the source, you know, let's just go straight and say, your children can find pornography online. It's there. Right. And they can find pornography that's of a type, uh, particularly, you know, regarding violence with women, which, of course, would be a very sensitive topic to me. And the, really the best way to counteract that, I think, is to make sure that you're also teaching your children what you perceive healthy sexuality is, or if it's some other topic, um, then to still make sure that you're balancing that out because ideas are pervasive today to an extent that is rather new. These children will, will they will know things. Right. They will have access to things. You can't protect you them, are not really, from with. that. You can't protect them, you, nor should you. I mean, it's right. it's you have to educate them. It's out there. You're going to see it. Here's what right. I think. You know, and it, it, was, it was always out there. It's just gotten easier. Yes, it it's is, gotten yeah. much more accessible. It, yeah, it, the, it, the whole, you know, keeping the National Geographic away from your boy thing <laughs> because the natives don't wear shirts, but it's kind of faded away, hasn't it? Yeah. Right. Well, see, the thing I is, we've, so. we've, it's really a pretty massive difference to talk about keeping the titties hidden, you know, from that to looking at, at um, pornography that depicts violence against women. Not, well, or, yeah, or whatever, and, and typing, you know, the, I mean, the thing that people struggle with is what you typed into Google. Right, you typed "baby doll" into Google, and look right. what you get. Right. So that's a personal thing that I just—I mean, I don't think that we should pretend that parents don't have to come to grips with that because it's a matter of raising our children the way that that we want to be involved. More and more, and, you're right. You're saying it right, though. It's a parent's issue. I mean, it's issues that we have all in our formative years didn't have to deal with as right. kids. It's re- and they're dealing with it, but we're we're. Not dealing with right. it so but, well, but right. I, I want to actually return for a moment to the to the privacy one because I think you've actually touched on something that's even more critical than 
than the basic idea of keeping your personal information private. Because, you know, certainly the teenagers I deal with, uh, they get that you don't use your real name. I mean, they, they understand the basic level of personal safety. However, I think we're also seeing a generational cultural shift in terms of the valuation of privacy. I think that we tend to value privacy. We think it's important. And a lot of them, they just, they just assume that there are no secrets. They assume that the government's watching and that they're being videotaped and, and photographed and, and that, that basically they just don't value privacy as a generation in the way that we did. We have taught them that in our schools, in, in the schools, at least in my district here, the children are never out of sight of a camera. A camera is always watching them. So, you know, they, they live in a big, we have taught them to live in a big brother society. Um, and so we just have to also, as, as, as adults, help them find their own ethics around that so that we don't raise a generation of children that don't care about the Bill of Rights. I mean, oh, I think, we I think, I think we've already done it is the problem. I think, I think we, we are raising that generation that they, they just don't see it important. You say, how important is privacy? A lot of times they say, well, you know, there is no privacy. Yeah, this, he, he, why, why would I put any importance on something that doesn't exist? Right, and of course we do have a generation of children that are now coming in to approaching adulthood that have never lived without uh, homeland security. So, you know, they, they, this has been their life. And so um, there's a set of issues around that, that that I think are terribly real for us as adults to look at the next generation and how we want to raise the next generation to be citizens, uh, you know, as well as to be our children growing up into young adults, but also as citizens. Um, I have a lot of concern about kids that, that don't value their privacy. Mine happen to, so they happen to be a little bit, they're, they're kind of left wing, and so they are very concerned about um, a lot of privacy issues and some issues around cell phone um, records having been released and some things on that. Well, and I, you shouldn't say have happened to, Kathleen. Obviously important to you, and you've conveyed that successfully to your children. Probably, yeah. I'm, probably, I'm thinking probably, absolutely. You know, I mean, you've you've represented yourself in that position quite well there. I don't know that everybody has that same position, but you certainly have there, and, and it's worked. So, I mean, parenting obviously has had some influence here, right? But I, I I do think that we want to look at that if it's citizens as well. Who I mean, who do you want voting in the in the next booth? Obviously, we want everybody voting, but we we don't want to raise um, people that think that you know the fact that we're looking for terrorists can't turn into we're looking for Libertarian Party members or we're looking for Green Party members or we're looking for Socialist Party members or Communist Party members or Democrats, for heaven's sakes. I mean, you know, we certainly um, we certainly have a system that, that needs to be protected. I'm, I'm very patriotic, and I really believe we have a system that does need protection. But some of the things about kids' attitudes, do ca- I mean, we're getting political, and we don't need to stay there very long, but it just does cause me some concern about what we're doing. Um, well, what, what I find interesting is we're, you know, have a, we, the, the four of us on, uh, on the show here have a particular set of beliefs that may not all completely overlap, but all of us are pretty comfortable with technology. We want our kids to be interested in technology. Uh, we're certainly, I think, fairly permissive as their ability to access and take advantage of it. And yet, with the notable exception of Kathleen's children, they're not interested in development. I don't know what, where yours are, Dan. Well, again, it's the same thing as I mentioned. The vast majority are not. But you know, just going back to, to this issue of, of, of privacy and so on, what we're really, 
what we're really dealing with is revolutionary change. I mean, we're talking yes. about the, the information revolution in a big way uh, as, as really taking place. And, you know, we, we, for example, give the Internet credit for political upheaval, right? And, and we say that that's how, what took down communism is that, uh, is that there was this increased access to information and so on. So, and, and we, we also look back in history and we say, what a revolution Gutenberg was, where you suddenly had the printed word. Well, in the past couple of decades, we've basically created a world where, for the first time in, in all human history, you have the ability for any individual to have access to a significant percentage of human knowledge, like instantly, and for the first time in, in the history of humanity, the ability to publish information that is accessible to the vast majority of you know, people in the world. You know, I mean, unfortunately, we exclude maybe the, the impoverished nations, but certainly, you know, in the in the developed and developing nations. So the question is, what kind of impact are those two changes going to have on the world? And the answer is, we don't have a clue. Right? But are it, we seeing it, this manifest in our kids today? Right. So, for example, you know, we talk about privacy, and we're all concerned about raising a generation that doesn't value privacy. Well. There's a flip side to that. Maybe we're also raising a generation that is incredibly tolerant of each other. I mean, right now, right now, we, we, you know, the media will bring up, you know, something happened, you know, the Reverend Wright said this, and, and everybody goes, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible. Uh, to a certain degree, we're raising a generation that my impression is they basically say, well, you know, there is no privacy. People know my life. I know people's lives. Live and let live. And there's, there's a lot of that. I don't see, you know, today's teens getting particularly freaked out at any of the conduct of their peers and, and even necessarily the conduct of adults. Well, well, of course they're corrupt, and of course this happens, and of course this happens. And also you don't see a lot of teens just morphing into what they, what they observe. You know, in other words, it's not, it's not affecting their core. I mean, the kid, my kids and the kids that their friends are, it doesn't really affect who, the core of who they are. If you see that everybody is different because you see who they really are, that gives you permission to be different too. And be yourself. So I'm not, I'm not seeing the kinds of peer pressure I saw even a decade ago. Uh, I don't hear as much talk about peer pressure. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of times, for example, when we do the, the drug talks, you know, you'd run into people who say, well, yeah, my friends do it, but I don't, and they're okay with that. And that's something you wouldn't necessarily have heard spoken about openly 10 or 15 years ago. So, so you know, there's, we're, we're, we're taking part in this gigantic social experiment, and, you know, there's things to be worried about, but we really don't know what are the good elements and what are uh, the bad elements that are going to develop from this. We're, we're just sort of watching it happen. And I don't know how much control we actually have over it. I mean, the technology is what's changing the world. And, you know, we're deploying it without any consideration of the impact that it's going to have or any control over the impact that it's going to have. It's sort of scary. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. 
ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I don't know if I told this story before, but I was um, sitting at a at a diner having some eggs with a friend of mine, and uh, I sprinkled a little black pepper on my eggs, and he says, hey, uh, you're going to put black pepper on, on there, huh? And I said, yeah. I said, why? He says, oh, it's bad for you. It'll give you prostate cancer. Bad for guys. Really? I said. And then I... Uh, Never, never heard of that. So I took out my phone, which had an internet browser on it, and I went to Google, and I Googled black pepper prostate cancer. And not I went after going through pages and pages and pages, not only did I see nothing published about any correlation between those two, but I actually found reports of where black pepper helped to boost your immune system, which was helpful in fighting cancer. Not only that, but and I know it's not black pepper, but hot pepper with the the caspican in it has that that stuff when applied directly to prostate cancer cells kills them dead. So I thought that was very interesting and and from then on, I've really taught my kids and my twelve year old who has a phone with a browser on it now, I told her that you should use this as your portable bullshit detector. Well, and I think our, we definitely are living in a generation now where that's exactly it. They question every fact. They can verify it from multiple sources. They're good at skimming through that sort of thing yeah. and just saying yes or no. Well, I don't know if they're good at verifying it because I don't know that they necessarily have skepticism that, that we'd like to see. But at least they have the ability to verify if they feel skeptical. I, and, I, and I thought back on my life and how much BS I was handed and swallowed without checking the facts and right. you know how it affected my decisions. And that's huge. That's and I huge. think it actually somewhat helps the kids to become slight skeptics that their num- their encyclopedia, the same thing yeah. we went to and we needed an encyclopedia, they know is horribly flawed because they know that, um, oh, the late night TV guy, the, um, his name, uh, Stephen Colbert. Colbert. Yeah, you know, has wiped out entire, you know, subjects and just made them insane. So they know those stories. And so the fact that Wikipedia, they, they, they know they can't trust Wikipedia. And we actually thought we could trust Britannica, you know. I mean, I'm not sure that it, I mean, it was probably more accurate than Wikipedia. Um, but we just took everything we saw there pretty much at face value. And I'm not sure that they do that. Uh, they may not be great skeptics, but I think that the concept that adults don't always have the answers and that there's not just a one touchstone place of truth um, may be there. I, I hope I hope it's I hope it's increasing. Uh, I, I don't know that I've necessarily seen trends one way or the other. You know, people tend to believe their friends, and I think that's just sort of a universal truth that has nothing to do with the internet or technology. It's always been true. Um, but I think the ability to be able to double check on your friends is a good one. So at yeah. least they can do it. Making it easy to easier to track down the bullshit's a good thing. Well, and it's also what is the consequence of believing this fact, right? Is is it that I just go hmm one way or the other, or is it actually going to mean something to me personally? Am I going to make a decision that's going to be affected by no knowing this one way or the other? So you know you you pick what you need to look up. And, you know, I'd love to, to use that as a way to kind of uh, transition into, I said there were three things I thought we should be aware of and kind of concerned about, you know, from my perspective with kids. So that kind of takes us to what I see as the third one. And that is that, um, and this may be increasing, and that's what, you know, is, is at least something I think as, as adults we should be aware of, and that is bullying and incorrect information about children on the Internet. So um, situations where somebody 
whether it's saying somebody is sleeping with somebody or somebody is gay or somebody, you know, has warts or somebody has cooties, whatever that is, that is something that um, it does happen. And it's like some of the other things we've talked about. It turns the volume up. It makes it easier to do, and it makes it um, harder to escape. It's like the cyberbullying, which is a real issue. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so that's something that I think that if there was just one thing I would say, you should know your child's relationship with the computer on this area. It would be their relationship to cyberbullying. That would be my, it's in this day and age, I really hope that we all mature and that in three years we don't say that. But today, that is the thing I would say, if there's only one aspect of everything your child does on the computer that you should know something about from talking to them and understanding who they are as a person, it would be that whether they are being bullied or whether they are bullying or whether they are standing to the side and allowing it to happen. Um, I think that's something we all need to kind of turn up the crank on. You know, I think there really there really are two issues here. One is sort of the general principle of, as a parent, are you communicating with your kids? And, you know, it, it amazes me, especially some of the parents of teens, how well they, how, how often sometimes they, they sort of reach, you know, the kid reaches 13 or 14, and it's sort of, I've, I've done my job, you know, they're, they're out with their friends now, and, and they feel either uh, uninterested or incapable of keeping the communication channels open. And it's hard. I mean, it is very hard to do, but it's very important, and that, again, is irrespective of technology. But now you have the additional challenge that parents face where it's not enough just to communicate with your kids. You have to learn about their world because your experience isn't necessarily relevant. And that is one of the consequences of you know, the, the rapid increase in the change in technology. So, for example, my dad, you know, he would talk about the Great Depression, and that was irrelevant. But at least, you know, we had some basic technological common grounds. You know, he understood television. He understood the telephone. You know, it wasn't rocket science. He understood automobiles. Those were, you know, the world that he grew up in was not that different from the world I grew up in. And that's no longer the case. That's, yes, that's very true, and, and we, um, you know, we have statistics, and I mean, one of the statistics that I just saw this, this morning uh, from an essay that my son wrote is that, um, you know, we have uh, 10% of our children in an identifiable uh, minority are responsible for 30% of our suicides, and that's a, that is an easily uh, bullied group. It's a, it's a, it's a known-to-be-well-bullied group. And whether the, in the what we've changed, this is a group that's been bullied always in physical presence. Um, whether that group is also going to be bullied online, and in so this is, I think, the, the change because you know we don't know what our children do in the hallways at school, but we assume that if they're really out of line and they're threatening to other children and they're doing things like that, that somebody's going to catch it. But that we want to make sure that that's happening uh, online too, and also probably more importantly that we're talking to our kids enough that we know if they're being bullied because then they really need our support. Have you guys had experience uh, yourselves with your, with your kids uh, about being bullied? Have you, have you ever had been approached by a kid who says, I need help with, uh, with this issue that I'm having with somebody online? Not online. My, my son has been bullied in, um, actually by young girls. <laughs> he, was, he was bullied in elementary school because he has some different um, um, Part of his life is not 
is not traditional for this area. And so um, he was bullied um, in elementary school. But we haven't seen it online primarily because my kids are actually not big social networkers. And, Dan, in your youth group, do you see, and the kids that, you, you know, you work with dozens and dozens and dozens of kids, do you right. see it? Um, things, things come up, and you know, as a as a group, as a community, not just as as the uh, as the advisor, but also the the you know the youth leaders are aware of it. And you know, a lot of uh, the communication within the group happens on private forums, and uh, they get monitored. And when stuff comes up, then uh, we deal with it, and messages either get deleted or. Uh, you know, we confront the individuals. You know, we we've had cases where we've had to trace IP addresses, and you know, uh, fortunately, they're not sophisticated enough necessarily to to hide that. So we're able to track them down based on previous messages and and address those kinds of issues. So, you know, it is important to uh, to be aware of these situations and to monitor them. And uh, you know, but the good news is that it's become less of a problem. Uh, again, it was a much greater problem I found, you know, say five years ago when, you know, online forums and social networks were just getting started and people sort of didn't understand that there were consequences to what you said. Uh, that's gotten better. I mean, I think even in general, I don't spend a lot of time on public forums, but I don't see flame wars the way uh, I used to back in the early days of forums. I mean, what do, what do you think? Uh, I mean, does anybody here participate in news groups? You just got to ask for flames, I found. <laughs> Only we do. If you want flames? You got to ask for them. You know, if you say somebody flame me, they'll they'll do that. But I mean, without a doubt, uh, you you deal with these issues in the schools where kids think they're anonymous online. And you know, my, my the core of my talk when I talk to kids about internet safety is just pointing out to them: you're not anonymous. We can find you. Don't make us. It sucks. You know that, and as soon as you recognize that there is no an enemy, you can be held accountable for your actions. Your behavior tightens up a bit. You know, they, 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 really, there's no difference between your online life and your real life, your physical life. They're all the same. They're just life. And, and that's another thing I think to point out is, you know, when my son first started doing, uh, and he was quite a bit younger when he first started doing. Um, my younger son was doing online stuff. He was talking to people. It happened to be over gaming. He would go out and do um, the interactive game stuff. And I was a little concerned. I talked to him because, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, is there some chance he's going to run into, you know, some sort of an awkward situation or something? And I said, so who do you play with? And he just, he just, so I'm like asking the question. He's like, well, this friend and this friend and this friend. And he just starts naming all of his friends. And I'm going, that's, that's who you go online to play with? You could go down the street and play with him. And he goes, no, no, we just do this sometimes instead. And what I found was for him very much that all of his technology is an extension of his life. It, it really is just, it's like um, turning up the crank on everything that we do, whether it's a relationship. And I know adults who are texting all the time to their significant other. And I'm like, you know, I need more of a break than that. But, some, but it, it's an extension of what we want to be doing anyway, a lot of it. And I think that, that the kids just have so many avenues to do it that we, unless we're very technology savvy, we, we don't do. Um, I certainly don't. The, the funniest example of this I saw was uh, uh, a number of years ago, I hosted uh, a LAN party. I do that periodically, but this one, we had uh, a pretty large crowd. So there were about 10 teenagers around the table, each with their own computer. Each computer is playing different music. 
at the same time, and some of them are <laughs> and some of them are on listening to headphones, and some of them is this cacophony of sound, and they're all sitting there quietly, IMing each other, right? Sitting they're in the same the room, table, sending instant messages to each other while listening. Brilliant. To music. And all at the same table. All at the same table, and that that's when I looked and I said. Okay, it's a strange new world we live in. But, you know, it's more polite than talking, right? <laughs> it is, and you can carry on multiple simultaneous conversations. Yes, and you can listen to music. And land so. parties are great because the ki- what I see on that is that the kids learn how to network. They, they learn how to build a certain um, level. Now, are you, are you, you said network, and I'm thinking, yeah, plugging in switches and, <laughs> and setting up IP address. Oh, no, 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 talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but Kathleen, I think I think you're absolutely right. The vast vast majority of communication that I see, whether it's uh, on uh, on the, the kids who are on Facebook or whether on the private message board or so on, is they're talking to each other or they're talking to people who are one degree of separation who were introduced by friends. Right. Um, that is know, the vast majority. Right. No, I mean I I really don't see people going onto strange sites somewhere and and. Uh, you know, meeting total strangers just out of the blue. There, there is that kind of uh, introduction process going on by and large. But I think it happens. Uh, it's just not as prevalent. Yes, absolutely. And where, where, where it tends to happen is when you have common interests, right? For example, a game. Right. And, and when, when my oldest son was about uh, 14, he was involved with strangers online, uh, because he, first, I've forgotten how he got involved with them, but he got involved with a online gaming company, so they were writing a game online, and uh, it was a great opportunity for him, and so he, he learned a lot, but through that process, for me, it was like, okay, we really have to understand where this break is between your electronic life and your real life, because I don't care if you're doing business with people, you are only 13 years old or 14 years old, and you are not going to meet them in the real world unless I'm standing there beside you. And right. So you know that it was it, it was a situation where he was definitely dealing with strangers from all over the world, but he also had an opportunity to work uh, on the development of a graphics engine with somebody out of Australia. And so you know, depending on where the child's going, they may, like you say, Dan, extend their interest in an area where they run into strangers, and that's where we really need to make sure they're not meeting them at the mall. I mean, that is that yeah. is a valid uh, yeah. uh, basic safety thing. But, you know, kids don't walk into traffic either. You know, right. kids, kids have a, have a self-presentation. Unless they have, unless they're explicitly engaging in dangerous activities, most kids have a pretty good sense that they want to live to be 20, that they're, you know, they don't go play in traffic and they don't do other highly dangerous things. And they would put, you know, meeting some stranger at the mall in the same kind of category. Right. Kids. And, and, and that's the other beauty of the Internet is when you are meeting people, uh, and again, this is generally speaking, when you're meeting people due to common interests such as a programming or a game or so on, there's a very good chance the people you're dealing with, the stranger, is in Australia. And let's face it, uh, the risk of meeting that Australian in a mall is pretty, pretty small. It's a yeah. very, very, very rare thing statistically for that kind of a thing to happen. So, uh, you know. Whatever happened to that press bit where they said that we're raising a a generation of social misfits because they all sit on their computers and never talk to each other? Hmm. I disagree. (laughs) They sit on their computers for the whole for the purpose of talking to each other, right? Yeah, but you know, one of the things that that I want to stress, you know, when we're talking about you know how people are engaged online or or the concerns about meeting strangers, um, there's no difference here really between kids and adults. No. 
Right. Well, and I was thinking about the fact that I am far more worried about some of my, you know, 40 and 50 year old friends that engage in online dating than I would be about the kids just because they have a different attitude. About yeah, it. and, and, and even here in our neighborhood, we had someone who met to do a Craigslist transaction and, uh, he got mugged. Hmm. Right? They'd set up a, hmm. they'd set up a meeting to, to, you know, buy and sell stuff and you know he showed up and the guy showed up and he got mugged so you know it these are these are not kids issues at all really it, it's these are universal issues and it and the kids have to learn these things that will serve them even when they're adults something that's very true is that people's personalities online don't always mirror their real personalities you know this is how they want to present themselves they have the time to write what they want. They have the time to edit. There's very little consequences for saying something because it's not face-to-face. Uh, when you see these people in person, they're going to be completely different. You can almost guarantee they're going to be completely different. I don't know that I'd agree with that, Carl, because, you know, having been online for, you know, the last 50, my 20, I guess going on 20 years because I was involved in early BBSs, um, I would say that the majority of people that I have met when I met them, didn't necessarily look like what I expected, but certainly had a lot of behaviors that were consistent with what I would expect. Well, you were probably you were probably dealing with mature people who knew exactly who they were and who they wanted to present themselves as. But when and, we're talking about kids and yeah, but and if predators, I did that James Carr, you wouldn't think they were that they were all mature. You told me earlier <laughs> that you didn't think you grew up. <laughs> teens do teens do like to use the online world to uh, to experiment with personas, and you know that's yeah. part of being a teenager is figuring out who you are. So I, I agree with Carl that the effect is more likely to occur with teens than with yeah. adults, yeah, unless somebody's being intentionally deceitful or something. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Well, and if um, you know you're talking about predators as well, you know somebody who presents themselves one way online could be turn out to be completely different. Yeah, well, intentional deceit is another that. can of worms. Yeah. But the kids recognize that, and if they go in someplace, and, you know, I mean, there's certainly some, um, you know, there's some of the, um, I, it's not Second Life, there's another one that a friend of mine um, has has done some work with, and in that he says, well, like this person, he says, I give a good guess that they're not what they purport to be. And so I think that that happens, but I also think that that's not the kinds of, it's not the kinds of experience most kids are looking for. They're not out looking to meet strangers. Like Dan said, they're, they're, they want to meet, you know, it's just like if they were going to the mall with their friends that they knew and they met some kids that somebody that, you know, one of their friends knew, they'd be introduced to them. So it's that first degree and maybe second degree of separation types of relationships. It's not the total stranger types of relationships. Exactly. And that's also the case, you know, um, it's, it's good to remember that that is what hurt us our kids, is that if we look at the, um, a lot of ways that kids are manipulated and abused, that the majority of that is people that have very little separation from the child in terms of their real life, their aunts, uncles, right. you know, friends right. of the family, but, but, church, uh, you know, church people, scout people. I mean, sorry, I don't mean to be putting those areas down. It's just, I, I'm not meaning to say that, I'm just saying that the adults that are, and the older, um, the young adults that are part of our children's lives, that is where we, if we look at statistics, that's where our kids right. are getting, you know, hurt, and but, that's what we should pay attention but to. Statistically, the, the kids are safer online than they are wandering around the neighborhood. Well, because yeah. online means home. Yeah, it, it, it does. 
and bites don't, you know, bits and bites don't hurt kids. Um, right. People hurt kids. And, I, you know, I definitely think that as parents, I mean, I'm a pretty free-range parent. You know, my, my children have had a whole lot of freedom, but they've also earned it, and they've also right. shown me that they're smart. And you know, even when they were younger, uh, my son, my youngest son actually was like two years old, and his, his uh, teacher was horrified because she'd gone, he'd gone up and said hello to a stranger in the mall. And she was horrified at this. And I said, that's not his job, that's your job, okay? And that happened to be a very nice old man, and they both had a very good day because they they talked to each other for two minutes, and it's your job to make sure nothing happens to him. It's not his job to do that. But they also need to be taught as they get older that, that they need to do that in settings that are safe and, and look after themselves, um, which they do by nature. I found there's no greater gift you can give a child than your absolute trust in them and their and, and confidence in their ability to do uh, to do to to excel, and then you, you know it's a sort of a. I don't mean to turn this into a parenting show, but you can. But you sort of uh, you're playing like a hand. You have to give a little and give a little bit more, and reward good behavior and reward better behavior with more and more trust. And the you know the the goal is to create an environment where they feel uh, able to experiment with the things that they want to do, and so they can find something interesting and really latch onto it. Right, and develop those relationships so that, you know, you've got the openness and the honesty, whether it's about what they're doing online. Right. And I think I have a relative, I mean, I don't look at my son's computer, but I have a relatively good clue what I would find. I'm not going to go look at that, and not all of it I'm comfortable with, but I trust that he is going to stay within bounds that I'm very comfortable with, and in other areas of his life, he absolutely astounds me with things that he, he does, and so that's that's a, it's a trade-off we make as, as parents um, to give them the ability to excel, but also the ability to experiment because well, think, those two things are part of the same. Yeah, I think it, I think it's two levels of trust. It's a trust that he'll remain within bounds, but it's b trust that when he goes outside of the bounds, that he'll have sufficient good judgment to be safe. Right. Because right. sooner or later he's gonna he's gonna you know those bounds are awfully gray and keep moving around. You know what I mean? Definitely, right. definitely. But the same thing is just as true as to whether our children are experimenting with, with drugs or if they're, you know, driving cars in ways that aren't safe or a variety of other issues that um, are the same things that we did as children and the same things that we made phenomenal mistakes in when yep. we were children. Right. And, and honestly, I see a lot more problems with with drugs and with driving issues than I do with online behavior, even things like cyberbullying. Yeah. I mean, the drugs are the ones that scare me, not not the the internet stuff. Yep, and the drugs today are a lot worse than the drugs of our youth. Let me just say that they are a lot more potent and they're a lot more uh, accessible. Yep. Yeah. Right. All right, guys. I think yeah. we're going to have to cut this off for fear of turning into the Oprah Franklin show. <laughs> 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 also, we're out of time. Okay. But, uh, wow, what a great hour it's been. Thanks. Well, thank you. It's been great fun. It's been a real pleasure, Carl. All right. And Richard. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. 
.NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.